Welcome to South Sudan in Focus on The Voice of America. I'm John Tanza in Washington, working on this program very much. Here are some of the top stories making news across Sudan this Thursday, January 12, 2023. Sudanese officials close schools for two weeks. We went on a series of strikes with the aim of keeping the school calendar stable and to give the ministry time to find a suitable solution. And an analyst says Sudan's talks should lead to the formation of a civilian-led government. However, you know, the military is unlikely to go forward with a transition unless they're able to negotiate some protections from prosecution. And this points to the need for some measure of compromise from all sides. We'll have these stories and more coming up on South Sudan in Focus. Officials at Sudan's Ministry of Education in Khartoum State have closed schools for two weeks. Education officials also announced changes to school calendar for the year 2022-2023, prompting some teachers to blame the ministry for doing very little to increase teachers' salaries. For VOA News, Michael Atit reports from Khartoum. A ministerial order signed by Garibella Mohammed Ahmed, the Director General at the Ministry of Education, ordered the closure of preschool, primary, intermediate and secondary schools until January 29th. The order gave no reason for two weeks' closure, but Sudanese teachers recently staged a series of strikes demanding salary increase which have affected a number of schools where teachers refused to work. Bashir Nail Taha, a member of the Sudanese Teachers Committee, says the ministerial order took them by surprise. The Sudanese Teachers Committee will only support such a decision only if it is meant to create a healthy environment to resolve our demands or if the ministry is trying to give enough time to find an amicable solution to the ongoing teacher strike. But if the decision is to postpone the solution, it will not solve anything. Speaking to South Sudan in focus in Khartoum, Nile calls it an attempt to escape reality by the ministry officials who Taha says are ignoring teachers' demands. The teachers are demanding a 20% increase in the general education budget and an amendment to the salary structure that would raise the minimum wage by 100%. Nile says the teachers' demands are legitimate and they are aware that schools could be affected by the strikes. We went on a series of strikes with the aim of keeping the school calendar stable and to give the ministry time to find a suitable solution. But unfortunately, our demands were ignored deliberately and moreover, we were surprised to hear. Abu Bakr Hamid, director of the private Tadamun Primary School in Omdurman, says school employees were shocked by the ministry's decision to suspend schools at a time when students are preparing to take exams. He says the government should address the demands of the teachers without shutting down the schools. Any suspension to the school calendar will definitely affect the plan and it will interfere with the general strategic plan of each school. At the same time, we also have to consider the situation of which our country is going through. Our hope is that this situation comes to an end soon and all our people are able to live in a secure and stable situation. 
is speaking by phone. Salwa Muhammad Ibrahim, a mother of three, calls the decision a setback. It is a sad decision for us, and I regard it as preventing our kids from acquiring education. They will just be staying at home doing nothing. One of my daughters asked me, what will they do during this period of time if there's no school? Last Sunday, the teachers' committee announced a nationwide three-week strike after the Ministry of Finance refused to raise the minimum wage for teachers to 69,000 Sudanese pounds from the current 12,000 Sudanese pounds. This program conducted officials at the Ministry of Finance for comment, but ministry officials were not immediately available. Michael Atid for VOA News, Khartoum. Still on Sudan, the representative of the European Union called on the Sudanese parties negotiating in Khartoum to form a civilian-led government leading to organization of elections. The final agreement includes five issues, transitional justice, security and military reform, review and evaluation of the agreement, dismantling institutions allied to the former president, Omar al-Bashir, and the issue of Eastern Sudan. VOA's senior analyst Mohamed Alashanawi discussed the potentials of the agreement with Joseph Stigley, director of research at Africa Center for Strategic Studies. These are challenging issues to resolve. We should make no mistake about that. And I think foremost among these issues is the one of justice. There's deep-seated anger and resentment at the military for betraying the 2019 revolution and derailing the democratic transition process with its October 2021 coup to maintain control and to squash the opposition. The military has killed hundreds of protesters and detained many others So Sudanese citizens are rightfully distrustful of the military and they're demanding justice. However, you know, the military is unlikely to go forward with a transition unless they're able to negotiate some protections from prosecution. And this points to the need for some measure of compromise from all sides, you know, that will result in a transition where there's a civilian-led democratic government, but the military retains a respected role in Sudanese society. And, you know, there are tangible incentives for the military to proceed with this transition. They are deeply unpopular and blame for all of Sudan's problems, having been in power for most of the last 30 years. And these problems are getting worse economically. Sudan has hyperinflation. It's been in economic decline for a number of years now. There's growing debt and everyday citizens are having difficulty accessing basic supplies. Moreover, international actors have conveyed to the military that there will not be significant investment and development assistance in Sudan unless there is a civilian government in place. And really, there's no scenario for how Sudan reverses course economically unless there is sizable amounts of foreign investment that comes into the country. So there are reasons why the military would want to proceed. And this includes also, from a security perspective, the advantages of having a a single unified uh, chain of command uh, compared to the highly fragmented security sector that Sudan uh, currently has. So while there are significant challenges, maintaining the status quo is also not a viable option. And so I think if we see all sides bargain in good faith that the possibility of reaching an agreement on these outstanding issues is a real possibility. 
So if the framework agreement led to a civilian democratic government, how would that impact the Sudan economic crisis? I think it would impact it in a number of ways. Number one, you would have technically competent individuals managing the ministries, and they would also have credibility with international donors and investors. And there would be more confidence that there would be genuine change in the way business is done. You know, over the 30 years of the military-led government in Sudan, the government has become highly dysfunctional and corrupt. And so very few international actors want to pour money into that system. At the same time, you know, Sudan has a lot of potential partners. And, you know, during the early days of the transition in 2019, there was quite a lot of international support and some debt forgiveness and other financial assistance that came into the country. And we saw improvements in the economic conditions. And so Sudan is in a very deep hole right now. Economically, it's going to take a long time to dig out of it, but they also have great potential. And there's just, uh, I think, a, a big upside to where the country can go if you have uh, capable and accountable leaders in place. That's Joseph Sigley, Director of Research at Africa Center for Strategic Studies, speaking to VOA's Senior Analyst Muhammad Al-Ashanawi. The UN's top human rights official warns the U.S. government's new border enforcement measures risks undermine people's basic rights to seek asylum. For VOA News, Lisa Schlein reports from Geneva. UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, Volker Turk, says he fears the new border policy will undercut the basic foundations of human rights and refugee law to protect the lives of people fleeing for safety. Turk's spokeswoman, Ravina Shamdasani, tells VOA the High Commissioner is concerned the measures will lead to an increase in collective expulsions without having protection needs assessed individually. She adds that people who undertake these dangerous journeys are fleeing very difficult circumstances in their home countries. The new U.S. policy would allow some 30,000 individuals from Venezuela, Cuba, Haiti, and Nicaragua to come to the United States every month for a limited period of two years. Shamdasani says the High Commissioner welcomes the measures that would create and expand regular safe pathways for migration. However, we are worried that these are very restrictive. Um, and that those who are most vulnerable and those who are most in need of asylum are unlikely to meet the requirements um, to be granted this humanitarian parole. Um, For example, one of the requirements is that you have to have a financial sponsor in the U.S. Um, Now, obviously, those who are most vulnerable will not be in a position to provide that. Shamdasani says the announced changes to the so-called public health order known as Title 42 are also of concern. That policy, she says, will be expanded to include increased use of expedited removals of migrants from the United States. She says Title 42 will permit the fast-track expulsion to Mexico of some 30,000 Venezuelans, Haitians, Cubans and Nicaraguans each month. You may be aware that Title 42 has already been used um, some 2.5 million times um, at the southern border of the United States to expel people to Mexico or back to their home countries without an individualized assessment of their protection needs. 
Um, this is an of obvious concern to us. High Commissioner Turk reiterated his call for the human rights of all refugees and migrants to be respected and protected at international borders. While there is a great deal of talk about migration crises, he says the reality is that it is those who are migrating who often are the ones truly in crisis. Lisa Schlein for VOA News, Geneva. You're listening to South Sudan in Focus on the Voice of America. Coming up, a new human rights report calls on world leaders to protect people's rights. Find out why after the break. What do you think? People speak out on important questions. The question today... Do you offer advice to your siblings? If so, what kind of advice? Yes, I advise my siblings. I tell them to be respectful to everybody, old and young alike. Yes, I advise my siblings. I tell them not to waste money, but to be careful in the way they handle money. I also tell them to give to people who are in need. Hard work always pays. And the, if you work hard, at the end you realize something that you didn't expect. So that's the single piece of advice that I will follow. I see, I always tell them to they work hard in school. Then, of course, they should be open in case they want anything or lack anything. What do you think? A daily discussion of important questions from VOA. You are listening to South Sudan in Focus on the Voice of America. The past year has seen a litany of human rights crises across the world, from Ukraine to China to Afghanistan, says the Human Rights Watch organization in its latest annual report released Thursday. The authors also say, however, that new champions of human rights have emerged. Henry Ridgewell reports from London. The past year has seen a litany of human rights crises across the world, from Ukraine to China to Afghanistan, says the Human Rights Watch organization in its latest annual report, released Thursday. The authors also say, however, that new champions of human rights have emerged. Henry Ridgewell reports. The Human Rights Watch organization says that following Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the global community deserves credit for unleashing what it calls the full arsenal of the human rights system, including an investigation by the International Criminal Court. Tirana Hassan is the acting executive director of Human Rights Watch. We saw immediate responses from the international community to mobilise around key human rights supports, including establishing uh, international justice uh, mechanisms, evidence gathering for war crimes. In towns like Bucha and Izium, there is widespread evidence that occupying Russian soldiers tortured, raped and executed civilians. The United Nations Human Rights Council has documented documented several hundred civilian killings, thought to be a fraction of the total. Volker Turk, the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, spoke to reporters in December. In some cases, Russian soldiers executed civilians in makeshift places of detention. Others were summarily executed on the spot following security checks 
in their houses, yards and doorways. Human Rights Watch's annual report also highlights ongoing abuses in China, including the mass detention, torture and forced labour of as many as a million Muslims in the Xinjiang region. Beijing denies the accusations. The report says the UN Human Rights Council's increased scrutiny of Beijing's actions is encouraging. Again, acting executive director Tirana Hassan. What we have seen for the first time in a a very long time is cracks in the authoritarian armor. In Iran, protests triggered by the death of Masa Amini after she was detained by morality police have grown into nationwide anti-government demonstrations. Human Rights Watch says the execution of at least four protesters must trigger a stronger global response. Again, Tirana Hassan. We need to move beyond international solidarity for protesters and need to make sure that governments all over the world are holding Iranian officials to account. The report cites increasing human rights abuses in Myanmar, where the authors say the regime is launching assaults on communities across the country that oppose the military coup. In Ethiopia, Human Rights Watch says the recent African Union-led peace process has resulted in a fragile truce. Again, Tirana Hassan. Ensuring that there is accountability for the egregious crimes that took place uh, in the Tigray region, for example, is going to be critical for this ceasefire and this truce to actually hold. The report says climate change is having an increasing impact on basic rights worldwide. It says governments have a legal and moral obligation to regulate industries such as fossil fuel extraction that are incompatible with protecting basic rights. Henry Ridgewell for VUA News, London. a message in the public interest from VOA Africa. The World Health Organization and U.S. Centers for Disease Control say coughing and sneezing can spread COVID-19. Physical distancing, staying at least one meter away from people outside your family can protect everyone. For more information, check with reliable sources such as the WHO and Africa CDC. And remember to listen to VOA for the latest on COVID-19. That was a message in the public interest from VOA Africa. Ethiopia's military says Tigrayan forces have started handing over heavy weapons as part of the peace deal to end the two-year civil war. Maya Miskir reports from Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. Ethiopian Federal Defense Force in a statement Wednesday confirmed Tigray forces have started handing over heavy weapons, the latest progress in line with the November peace deal. The statement said the first round of weapons were transported on Tuesday in Agula Camp, 36 kilometers from Tigray's capital, Makele. Ethiopian Army Commander Lieutenant Colonel Alamit Haddela said the arms transfer included tanks, rockets and mortars. The statement said observers from the African Union and various countries' militaries were present to verify the transfer from the Tigray People's Liberation Front. The confirmation came after TPLF spokesman Gita Chorada early Wednesday tweeted news of the handover. 
He said they hope and expect this will go a long way in expediting the full implementation of the agreement. The AU-brokered peace deal signed in South Africa saw the two sides agree the TPLF would disarm in return for restoration of aid and services to Tigray and withdrawal of foreign forces. The deal came after two years of devastating war that saw Tigray largely cut off from the rest of the world, hundreds of thousands of people killed and millions displaced. The two sides have met a few times in Kenya's capital, Nairobi, to discuss implementing the deal. Since December, Ethiopia has allowed humanitarian aid to enter Tigray and restored power, water, banking and telecommunications to the region. Witnesses say in late December, Eritrean troops who fought on the side of federal forces withdrew from two cities in Tigray. However, the TPLF accuses Eritrean troops of committing atrocities during the conflict and says they are still active in some areas of Tigray. Maya Misakar for VOA News, Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. This is a message in the public interest from VOA Africa. Hello, I'm VOA health correspondent Lenore Moudou. The World Health Organization and Africa Centers for Disease Control say we all can help fight the coronavirus pandemic by wearing face masks that cover our mouths and noses when we are in crowded areas. For more information, check with reliable sources such as the WHO and Africa CDC. And remember to listen to VOA for the latest news on COVID-19. That was a message in the public interest from VOA Africa. South Sudan in focus is now on WhatsApp. Send us a message on plus one two zero two six three zero eight zero one one. Tell us what's happening in your area or give us your feedback on the stories you hear on South Sudan in focus. We look forward to hearing from you on WhatsApp. That number again, plus one two zero two six three zero eight zero one one. And that's all we have prepared for you this Wednesday. Don't forget to check out voaafrica.com for all your favorite programs and news updates. If you miss this broadcast, go to www.voaafrica.com forward slash South Sudan. We now leave you with Kuzo's clan and the song Binia Juba. Still alive record. Binia Juba. Many men. Cool bush, cool bush, yeah. Cool bush. Mama, who's that? 
We have been listening to Kuzu's clan and the song Binia Juba. I'm your host, John Tanza in Washington. Thanks for taking time to be with us. Remember to join us again tomorrow for another edition of South Sudan in Focus from the Voice of America. Shut up, Binia, he was in Binia, you